you would like to follow in your text and turn to Isaiah 53 for just a, a moment before we have our deacons come and lead us in our incredible service of when you think of the, uh, the bread and the cup and what that means to us as brothers and sisters in Christ. The highlight has been Isaiah 53. And I'm glad for this particular text that these brothers and sisters have led us in. But I would begin with this question, and that's this. It's called Good Friday, so why do we call it good? When you think of what's taken place, at least uh, scripturally. And when I was thinking about this in my own private devotional life, I thought, you know, really, uh, it's not called good because of the cruelty of the cross. But it's called good because of the significance of the cross. So if you can understand this, because our world today somehow loves gore. But when you look at how Mark develops it, or Matthew, or even Luke, uh, they seem to be very careful in what they speak about when it comes to the actual crucifixion itself. But it's just full of significance. And that's where they major. And interesting that's where Isaiah 52 and 53 major as well, which is really the first gospel. There's four gospels of the New Testament, but Isaiah 53 is the first real gospel that we have. So we have five gospels in our, in our Bible. When I look at this particular gospel that's in front of me, it starts in chapter 52, verse 13, and there's five stanzas. We heard a number of them already, maybe all of them several times, one through music, one written. And spoken. But when I look at this particular text, uh, stanza 1, verse 13 to 15 of 52, and then stanza 2, verses 1 to 3, stanza 3, as you work your way through the text until you get to the final and fifth stanza, which is verse 10, 11, and 12. And I want to just hone in for just a moment with you on this final stanza. I believe, as one commentator said, that all the stanzas sort of find their reservoir. In this last stanza, the themes of Isaiah 52 and 53 come together in these 13 lines as you look at verse 10, 11, and 12. But when I was thinking about this, I thought, really, I'd like to hang my hat on the two thoughts of this last stanza. Thought number one is this. The death of the servant was not an accident. That's the thought that comes out of verse 10, 11, and 12. It was indeed purposed by Yahweh, by God himself. And the second and incredible thought that comes through this particular text is this. The death of the servant has eternal benefits, but only for those who believe. The eternal benefits are only for those who believe. And that's why he begins the second stanza of verse 1, chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Martin Luther translated, who has believed our preaching? Who has believed our witness? Who really has grasped what has taken place on the cross? A, a transaction that took place for me, for us, for believers between Christ and God, between God and us through the mediator, Jesus Christ, who has believed this. So when I think of that first peg, and I look at these three verses here, the death of the servant, who we know is Jesus Christ in the New Testament, it was 700 years earlier, it's the death of the servant. 
The death of the servant begins in verse number 10, and it is no accident. The verse says to us, it is or it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, Yahweh, put him to grief. The NIV translation says, and the Lord makes his soul an offering for guilt, putting the, the accent on Yahweh. Again, the first pronoun, Yahweh, shall see his offspring, his children, the children of the servant, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. So when you notice verse 10, it begins with the will of the Lord and it ends with the will of the Lord. So verse number 10 is given over with an emphasis to the Father, Yahweh the Father. And I think it's a significant thing for us when I was uh, going through Romans in chapter 3 in my mind, in verse number 24, 25, we are justified freely by the, his grace through the gift, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God purposed, whom God purposed to be our propitiation through his blood. It was the purpose and plan of God to do this. It was no accident. It just didn't just happen all of a sudden. And the anger of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people of Israel didn't just boil over into in a volcanic way. So all of a sudden there's Jesus nailed to a cross. No, it didn't happen that way. This was the plan of the Father. And since the Father lives in the eternal now, having no beginning, no end, this has been the plan all along, men and women. It is no accident. This is the pleasure, the delight, the will of the Father. When I consider what Paul wrote in Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse 2, he said this, Christ gave himself up for us. Listen to these words. A sweet, fragrant offering. A sacrifice to God. But there's a second side to this. And most of the lines, in fact, nine of the 13 lines are given over to this. And that's the benefit and the blessing for all of those who do, in fact, believe. And in verse number 11, it says this, Out of the anguish of the servant's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. When I look at this particular verse here in front of me, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the realization that death is how verse 9 ends. And then verse number 10 begins this last stanza, and it's the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that his son go through this suffering. And the response of the son, son is overwhelming. It says in the text that out of the anguish of his soul, he sees, he's satisfied. Through the knowledge of the servant that placed him in this position, my servant, the righteous one, he will make many to be accounted righteous and he will bear their iniquities. If I could jump up to verse number 10 and just pull a phrase out and then come back down to verse 11 to make this live in verse number 10, it says this, that Yahweh will see his seed, his offspring, his children. 
The most amazing thing is that we just read just a moment ago from chapter 53 and verse number 5 that he was going to be crushed and we were going to be, verse 6, like, like, like sheep that have been straying and been walking away and we were walking away from the very one who was crushed for us. And so straying sheep are now in the family, verse number 10. They are called children before straying sheep, now called children. And so in verse number 11, it makes this statement that he will make many to be accounted righteous. So not only are they going to be sons and daughters, those who were straying sheep, but now they're also going to look like God. They're actually going to put on a robe of righteousness. In chapter 64 of Isaiah, in verse number 6, it says that all our righteousnesses are like polluted, a polluted garment. But here, in 53, he makes this statement that he will, through the anguish of his soul and through the offering that he gives, he is going to give his robe of righteousness to all of those who believe so that we are not only children of God, verse 10, but now we are also looking like our God. He who is righteous, we are looking like that. We look like that positionally and because the Holy Spirit lives within us, we start looking like this practically. This is how we know we are sons and daughters of God. Not only have we believed, and I love John 1, 12, those who receive him, they become children, the right to become children of God. It's a wonderful thing, but all of those who have the right to become children of God are also wearing the robe of righteousness, and they also are seen by God as righteous because of who Jesus is, and through their own personal life, they are living out a righteous standard because of the spirit who lives within, who is motivating and active in their life. There is no room for duplicity in the Christian life, brothers and sisters. There is no room for a foot in the world and a foot in righteousness. And I can play the game both ways. It doesn't matter what your thought in your, I prayed that prayer, or I was baptized, or I joined that church. But everything about this Friday, which literally changed the course of history, was about the anguish of the servant on the cross whose goal was to make you a child of God. And that goal is heightened because his righteousness now will be placed to your account so you look like God to a pagan world in the way that you live. I love the theology that flows through this last stanza. We are seen as his children. We are accounted righteous, no longer wearing those, that polluted garment. And I love what it says in the text that he will bear their iniquities. You see, Jesus, the servant, prophesied. Jesus, 700 years later, was not on a cross for his own sins. So Matthew in the New Testament begins in chapter 1 and verse 21. He will save his people from, he will separate his people from sin. I mean, that's, that's why we have a reason to sing today, brothers and sisters. Forgiveness, 
redemption, separation from. Psalm 103, he hides them. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far our sins are removed from us. The theology that is here in this final stanza is quite overwhelming. Peter picks up this theme in Isaiah 53 and says, He himself bore our sin in his own body, on the tree, dot, dot, dot. Through his wounds, we have been healed. So we gather here, brothers and sisters, we gather and there is a solemnity beyond anything we can imagine. There is a weight upon anything we can imagine, but there's also this incredible joy. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the great joy of life is I'm walking in a world as God's daughter, as God's son. I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is how the Father looks at me. And the spirit within is helping me to work out in my daily life what my position is before God. And the whole thought that he bore my sin. Men and women, if we got what we deserved, we would not go to hell. We would be in hell. If we got what we deserve. So I say to you today, the theology that is here is rich and sweet and great. But I love how he ends up in verse number 12. In verse number 12, Yahweh's speaking, saying, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is an amazing statement that's here. The result of all that's taking place, the result of the plan of God, the result of the action of the servant has benefiting us today so that we are children that are robed in righteousness and our sins have been separated from us. But then he concludes in verse 12 with this thought. The one who went through this incredible difficulty, I am going to exalt higher than any general that's ever lived. In fact, that's how he began in chapter 52, verse number 13. He will be high and lifted up. He will be, a, uh, he will be exalted. That's the same wording that you find in Isaiah chapter 6, speaking of Yahweh on the throne, high and lifted up. My servant has the same place as me, meaning, don't miss this, that this servant has deity, is deity. He is high and lifted up. And so in verse number 12 of chapter 53, he reminds us using, using metaphors from the world in which they lived at that time that he will have his portion with the strong, those who are great men. And why? He gives four reasons. Because, number one, he poured out his soul to death. Make no mistake that Jesus did not come to this earth kicking and screaming and holding on with his hands, saying, I don't really want to go to earth. Christ did not come kicking and screaming to this earth. He came willingly. Think of this, willingly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think of this. He wasn't leaving heaven because we're really great people. He's leaving heaven because we were sinners, ungodly, enemies, without strength, helpless. And the text says that he poured out his soul to death. He gave it all at the cross so that we might have life. He didn't just sort of become unconscious and then placed in the grave, and because of the coolness of the grave, he, he was revived. No. He poured out his soul to death. Secondly, he was numbered with the transgressors. This is a highly significant point because of what this song already stated. Just jump up to verse 3 and 4 very quickly. He was despised and rejected by men. All of his peers said, you are insignificant. Think of it. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one as one from whom men would hide their faces. They were totally embarrassed. He was despised, and we did not count him significant. In fact, verse number four says, we thought... <laughs> God did this to him because he called himself the Son of God. But notice in verse number 12, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. This one who is going to be high and lifted up and exalted, God will place him at the place where it says in Philippians chapter 2 that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we either now, in this life, profess him to be Lord, or we will one day do that, but it's going to be too late. I would much prefer to do that tonight. How about you? Much prefer this. Numbered with those transgressors. And then, again, substitution. He bore the sin of many. He took upon himself our sin. What's the most... What's the most heinous person in your mind you can think of in history? Now multiply that and multiply that and multiply that and multiply that and multiply that. He bore your sin, my sin, our sin. And, number four, he makes intercession for the transgressors. I love this. He intervened in behalf of good people, kind people, pretty people. <laughs> he intervenes in behalf of transgressors. When I see that, my mind runs immediately to this passage. Hear these words in Romans in chapter 8, where it says this, who is he that will condemn us? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who lives? He is raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed, listen, interceding for us now. So he interceded for you 2,000 years ago and me. He interceded for us and he is now interceding for us. When I was going through this text, brothers and sisters, I, I just couldn't help. In fact, it was uh, two years ago, so they asked me to speak for a full week on Isaiah 53. And I, I tell you, there is no passage that I shudder more at trying to explain because when I open it up, I see all my sin. I see myself. I, I mean, why is it that I would be full of pride? Why is it that I would elevate myself in this world as a believer in Jesus Christ? Why is it that I would exalt my personal gift above someone else? Why is it that I would not live humbly before my great God? And I open up the text and see what Christ has done, humbling himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he humbles himself. And I exalt myself. It's very difficult for me to take this passage. I, I find that when I preach this passage or speak about this passage or talk about this passage, I feel like I spend more time on my knees by my desk than in the seat looking on my desk at the books that are there. God, I, who am I? Who am I? But the one thing that gives me great joy in all of this is this particular final stanza. Jesus bore my sin. Jesus separated me from my sin. Jesus allowed me, because of my faith trusting him, allowed me to become his child. And he gave me his righteousness so that God looks at me through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how God sees me. And so today I can sing. Today I can rejoice. But I would say this to us, brothers and sisters, as we think of this day in the history of the world, we will know from heaven's shore there was no day like that day. With one exception. Would you turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 before our deacons come? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse number 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Some translations say broken for you, and that makes me shudder. Because the emphasis has never been on the cruelty of the cross. In fact, not one bone of him is going to be broken. That was prophesied. But here, the text is very clear. The emphasis is not on the cruelty of the crucifixion. The emphasis is on the significance of the crucifixion. It says in the text, I received this of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is it. This is my body which is in behalf of you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, and remember me. I think the most incredible thing is, he didn't say to the church, I want you, every time you think of me, to to give X amount of money, to do so many different works, to do all that kind of thing. He, He said, listen, when you come together and you remember me at this table, all I want you to do is remember that I gave my body for you, that in my blood is your everlasting life. Remember this. Remember this. Remember this. Verse 25. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What are the last three words? Until he comes. History was marked on that Friday. Nine o'clock in the morning, Jesus was nailed to a cross. At noon, darkness came for three hours And at three o'clock, he breathed his last breath and said, It is finished. The significance of all of that is what Isaiah 53 is about. But the beauty of this is not just to remember and to think through, but also to rejoice because he is coming again. He is coming again. And brothers and sisters, he's not going to come as a man of sorrows. He's going to come as the king of kings and lord of lords. And he will set his feet upon this earth and all wrongs will be made right.